0: us to do the same. In fact, uh, you won't be happy until you do. (laughs) I'm going to take you tonight back into the first book of the Bible, over the book of Genesis, and I want to read from chapter 22, an incident that occurred in Abraham's life. Uh, Genesis 22, and I'm going to read the first 12 verses of that chapter, and I might add, if you would like to stand for the reading of the word, you're welcome to do so. If you'd like to be seated, you're welcome. But I'm going to be reading from Genesis 22, the first 12 verses. You'll recognize the incident in his life. It's a tremendous pattern of teaching for you and me. And by the way, uh, if you wonder why I so emphasize the need of uh, the church being sanctified entirely, I'm reminded of the prophet that said, the heathen will know that I'm the Lord God when I'm sanctified in you before their eyes. So if we're going to convince the world, we must be where Jesus wants us to be, to be used for that end. I'm going to try to be definitive tonight and a bit clarifying. I've prayed this day and worked in my study half of the time anyhow. I had to mow my yard, but I got that out of the way. And I want to share what God shared with me. Genesis 22, verse 1, and it came to pass that these things that God did tempt, and that is a word meaning test. You see, the devil tempts us to break as God tempts, attests us to make us. He tested Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. He said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. And get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And clave the wood for the burnt offering, rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. And then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go up yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. They came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Giving all that we have. Father, speak to each one of us tonight. May we preach as we've never preached before. and May we hear as we've never heard before. May we realize the day will come when we shall speak the truth one more time, and we will hear it for the last time. Therefore, God, may we preach as a dying man to dying men, and may you be glorified. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. may be seated. Let me take you a little bit into the school of Christ. There are two words, we don't use them, seldom use them, but they're very meaningful words. There's the word monergism, and there's the word synergism. Monergism in the spiritual realm would teach that God alone determines the destiny of man's soul. In other words, he has so predestined or predetermined who would be saved and who would be lost. We don't believe that. The other term is synergism, which is the cooperation between two or more. We believe while Jesus is the only Savior, and we are saved by faith through the grace of God, that while He is our Savior and we're not saved by works lest any man should boast, we have a part to play in cooperating with God and the decisions we make will determine the destinies that we arrive at. So each of us have a part to play in this great plan of salvation. Now when I said to you in this whole matter of sanctification, I conclude probably most of the time that I'm preaching to the church, those who come because they love God and have an experience with God and walk with Jesus and want to know more in depth about what our relationship is and what it should be. Man's obligation is to make a complete or an entire consecration and then God's work is the work of entire sanctification. I think sometimes we confuse the two. There is a consecration that we must give of ourselves and there's a cleansing that comes through the work of entire sanctification. Now oftentimes the question is asked, what do I receive in entire sanctification, the second work of grace that I did not receive, or that I re- what more did I receive than what I received in the new birth, the first work of grace? The answer to the question is nothing. You didn't receive anything more in the second work of grace than what you already received in the first work of grace. It's not what you received, it's what you got rid of. One of the old timers years ago said, when I got saved, I received something in my heart that I never had before in my life. When he got sanctified, he said, I got rid of something I'd had all of my life. And so we have to understand the purpose of sanctification is to cleanse that perversion which befell us whenever Adam sinned. And it's passed upon the whole human race. As I read this passage to you, it's an incident in his life that I think it speaks to this whole matter of total consecration. I worry that maybe we are delinquent in really making a complete and total abandonment of our walk and our work and our life to God. And we wonder why God cannot complete his work of cleansing us from sin. When you read this, you notice there are the shades of Calvary that flows through this story. For example... The son that he was offering was his only son, and I says that even though he was responsible for Ishmael, he was not considered in that context. He, here is the promised son of Isaac that God gave to Isaac and Sarah when they were long past time for childbirth, and consequently there's, there's a parallel here in the life of Christ. Jesus was the only begotten son of the Father. here. Isaac is the only son of of Abraham. The birth of both of these men, Isaac and Jesus, was very miraculous because you remember Sarah was well up in years in her 90s and Abraham was 100 years old when uh, Isaac was born. That's a miracle. It was also a miracle when Jesus was born. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. If you notice, when they climbed the mountain, Isaac carried the wood, just as Jesus one day carried the cross up Mount Calvary to be crucified on. If you remember, it was a three-day journey that Abraham was commanded to take to get to Mount Moriah, and we also remember, don't we, it was three days he laid in the tomb before the resurrection. And throughout this whole story, there are implications and shades of the cross. Now, every Christian will sooner or later face the matter of an entire consecration to God of all that he has or all that he expects to have. It's what we call an eternal love covenant. It is denoted here as this word consecration. And while we may approach it gradually, there comes a moment in time when it com- becomes complete in our offering to God, it's as a man and a woman, following an engagement, will make take set up a time to make a love covenant of marriage, and when they make that love covenant, they separate themselves from all others and they dedicate themselves wholly to each other and and dismiss every other loyalty and love until death us do part. Even though seldom is the. Seemingly today, true, God contemplated permanency in the marriage vows. He also contemplates permanency when we offer ourselves in total abandon for the cleansing work of entire sanctification. In Romans chapter 12, you know this is the classic call for the believer to enter into this love covenant with God. And Paul lovingly urges or beseeches them to present themselves, their body, including the entire person, a living and a holy and an acceptable sacrifice. And he says, this is your spiritual service of worship. When you offer yourself in consecration, it's a sacred act of worship. It's literally the act of a priest in offering themselves to God. Now, the believer's conviction for the need of total cleansing usually grows out of a painful awareness that they are not living up to the standard or the heights of God's loving command that rests on them. And all of a sudden, they realize their desire to be pleasing to the one to whom they owed their forgiveness is found to be lacking. And when that is true, because love now is the motivation, it's not fear. When we come to Jesus in forgiveness of sins, it's the terror of the Lord that persuades us. It's the fact that we know we're lost. We need to be born again. And so we, with great fear, come to the altar and surrender. But this is a consecration. This is a giving over. While that was motivated by fear, this is now motivated by love. And so consequently, we realize a conviction within that we're not living up to the standard, that we're called to live, that Jesus provided for us to live, and our heart is grieved that our life does not please him. By the way, I think I counted recently 50 different times in the New Testament, the word please, pleasing, pleasure is used. And over and again, you remember Jesus was emphasizing that he always pleased the Father. His desire was to always please the Father. And the Father three times made the same statement about his Son when he said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So if we are to be a pleasure to Jesus, we must be living up to the standard, as we heard in the song tonight, in total abandon, giving all. Love cannot give more than the gift of itself, but it must not give less than the gift of itself. As love abounds more and more, you will soon discover that holiness is two-sided. It's love and hate. You say, how can that be? Well, we love God and holiness with a burning devotion. And at the same time, we hate everything unholy with a flaming aversion. Uh, I think it's in Romans it says, it admonishes us to abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. But you see, our tenacity in cleaving to the good is no greater than the intensity of our abhorrence of evil. Don't talk about loving God with all of our heart if we don't hate sin with all of our heart. If we love God with all of our heart, then anything contrary to the Holy One and His will for our lives cannot be in any way surrendered to. And I think sometimes we try to hold on to the world with a measure and try to hold on to God These forces are so diametrically opposed to one another, it'll rip you apart at the seam. You have to make the surrender complete. This is one of the evidences, as far as I'm concerned, that one is truly born again. We believe in two works of grace, but we don't believe in two standards of living. There's a vast difference between the two. Because you see, the minimum measure of grace acceptable to you and to God is an intense desire for the maximum measure of grace that's available in other words i want everything god wants for me i don't want what he forbids of me i must be totally surrendered to his will for me In entire sanctification we commit to god's care what we know And all that we don't know. You say, how can you do that? Well, they used to talk about it when you come to offer yourself in consecration. They used to talk about a known and an unknown bundle. I remember I was only just uh, over 15 years of age when I got saved and four weeks later got sanctified. I didn't understand this consecration. In fact, I thought whenever I realized that something was awry within me following four weeks of my conversion, it scared me that i thought i had lost what god gave me in the new birth i was new in the church i'd never been in the church before i knew very little about god and salvation and so i prayed and i said god did you give me something four weeks ago to take away from me now that's how ignorant i was no he just reminded me and another gentleman who was a godly man to help me along the way He said, you are seeing sin in a deeper measure than you saw when you asked God to forgive you of your transgressions. It's deeper down and further back. It's not the deeds that you committed. It's the depravity of the heart. It's not your sins. It's inbred, inherent sin because of the fall of Adam that's inflicted on everybody in the human race. So I pleaded with God What I needed to do. And the man instructed me. And gave me good instruction. And he said Nelson when he gave you life. He saved you. And gave you love. He said now he wants you to return that to him. And he will cleanse you. From that corrupt perversion you inherited. Because of Adam's fall. And you'll love out of a pure heart fervently. And so I did that. And by faith. I consecrated everything I knew. Oh, he said, that's not all. You must consecrate what you don't know. (laughs) I was only 15 years of age, so I didn't know a whole lot. But I can tell you one thing, that bundle was rather small compared to the bundle that was unknown to me what the future held. And that's been now almost 61 years ago now, and that bundle has been shrinking because life, and consecration becomes a process of transferring from the unknown bundle into the known bundle. And every day, I can assure you, as you walk with Jesus and keep in the light and continue to keep your consecration up to date and walking out of a pure heart, that known bundle is going to get larger and larger and larger, and the unknown bundle is going to get smaller and smaller and smaller. In other words... Our consecration must be complete, but it must be continual or continuous. Because every day, God's going to show you something. Because if you don't realize this, when you say, I give everything to God, the enemy's going to come and sit on your shoulder. And all of a sudden, something's going to come up that you didn't know about. And the devil's going to become the accuser of the brethren. And say, yeah, you didn't give that to him, but you did give it to him. You just didn't know it yet. Now that it's made clear to you, you just make the transference and let old Splithoof go on down the road. Splithoof, we don't hear that anymore, do we? Just as uh, when you're married, wife and I will soon celebrate our 57th year of anniversary. She's, she's only 58. I don't know how that worked, but anyhow. But I can tell you, we had no idea the day of the wedding all the adjustments that would have to take place across 57 years. By the way, we had the engagement, like being born again. There came the moment of the wedding where we consummated the vows of holy matrimony. It's been 57 years now of the marriage life. That's the way it is with the holy life with Jesus. I didn't know all that I was gonna to have to make adjustments to. I said I do then, I've been I doing all ever since. So I shouldn't go there. I gotta be careful. <laughs> all I know is you can make those adjustments, and you all have done this without breaking your vow. When they come up, okay, this is I didn't realize okay, I'll walk okay, okay. That's the way the marriage works out. I think about it often times, our pastor talking about the Iran situation, who knows what the future holds for us, but I think of those tremendous young men, soldiers, who stand before a recruiting officer and gives the vow that they will defend this country even to the extreme of death, and many of them, hundreds of thousands, went out and died because of the vow that they gave. They did not know what they might suffer following the enlistment, but they continued on. God wants us to be good soldiers. However, when it comes to the all-knowing, infinite God, it will be necessary that we always take his side on every issue. Let me say that because that's not going to be easy. You must take Jesus' side on... Whatever the issue is, even though you may not know what his providential will is. I give you all kind of examples of that, but you know the man called Job. Job, who was a perfect man, Jesus spoke of him, the ex Christ, Satan. When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, Satan came also. And Jesus put Job in their face, in Satan's face. Have you tried my servant Job? He's a just man, fears God, choose evil, he's perfect, he's upright. Have you tried him? You know the dialogue that went on between jo- uh, Satan and God about Job. Job was just the object out here. Yeah, I know about him. You got him hedged in. You won't let anybody get to him. He's going to be under your protective care. He said, so I'll let you have it. do anything you want. Don't take his life. How would you like for God to put you on the spot like that? And I can tell you, Job did not understand that. He lost seven children immediately. He lost all of his wealth. He lost his health. He even lost the comforting friends that came and sat beside him, three of them. He even lost the loyalty of his wife. Why don't you just curse God and die? And yet Job says the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm saying it one more time. He took the side of the Lord in spite of how everything looked. By the way, there's some things you're never going to understand because God does not feel necessary to unveil all to us. I learned a long time ago, you better let God know some things you don't know. You'll be all right if you do. God gave us a head, but he isn't going to give us an infinite mind. The attitude of perfect consecration that we're talking about here now cannot be maintained without the grace of entire sanctification. Many years ago, Tim Anderson was one of the great uh, speakers and, and, and preachers of the old Asbury revival that occurred. Two of them did this one, I think, early in the 50s. But at the the university where he was teaching Greek, he said, a lady came up to him, young student lady, and said, uh, I want to know something. He said, I offered myself and all my service to God. Does that mean I'm sanctified? He said, no. He said, how do you know I'm not sanctified? Well, he said, there's two reasons immediately. One, if you were, you wouldn't have to ask me. God will tell you. You can read that over in Hebrews. The Holy Spirit bears witness to that work of grace just as he does when you get saved. But he said, that's not the only reason. He said, you said, I've offered myself for service. Does that mean I'm sanctified? He said, let's understand sin is a disease of the soul. He said, let's suppose you have a cancer of the body. If you went to a doctor to deal with this cancer, you wouldn't go to the doctor and say, Doc, I'm here to offer my service. We're going to get rid of this cancer. He said, you don't want your service. He wants yourself. (laughs) And when he gets you, he's going to put you out and he's going to do surgery on you and rid you of the cancerous tumor. Sometimes we're trying to do God's work for him. God does the work of cleansing. We do the consecrating. Don't get the two mixed up. Jesus provided for the cleansing of the soul on the cross, which is the essential necessity to restore the lost image that man forfeited when Adam sinned. I do not understand why we don't see the importance of the blood of Christ. Maybe I can explain. It's the perversion I've already stated in the man's soul that was brought about because the first parents fall in the garden, Jesus provided cleansing, and it will require of us a complete consecration to receive the radical experience of his cleansing work through the merits of his blood now why have i said all this and i realize i'm kind of I, i'm not preaching as much as i'm trying to teach a little bit i think i think it's illustrated in our text abraham was tested as far as i'm concerned at the most sensitive point of his life When Jesus said in verse 2, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. Listen to the emphasis that he places. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now I have to tell you, I pray God never tests me that severely. I've, I've walked with Abraham who was like a nomad who never really had a home when I read this over and over, my heart bled for this man. You have to understand, Abraham made a complete consecration to God when he was 99 years old. If you remember over in Genesis 17, God said to Abraham, he was Abram at the time, Abram, walk before me and be thou perfect. Now, when he said said that, he prefaced it with the words, I am the Lord God. Now, when you see that word, I am the Lord God, he's talking about the fact I am the El Shaddai God. That statement means I'm the enough God. I'm the enabling God. He never asked him to walk before and be perfect without saying, first, I can enable you to do what I command you. He never commands anything of us, but what he has enabling grace for us to meet that command. And he did so with Abraham, Abram at 99. And of course, at that moment, he changed his name from Abram to Abraham. Consequently, it is one thing to lay all on the altar of consecration for the Lord. It's another thing to stay yielded when we're going through the tests and trials of life. Too many people find it easy to take it off. Not that you can't do this because a year following that statement in verse uh, seven, chapter 17, verse 1, when he's 99 years old, when he was 100 years old, God gave him the promised child, Isaac. 25 years later, he now is testing Isaac, and he's asking him in the most severe testing a man ever faced, give him back to me. Offer him as a burnt offering on the altar, and I'll show you where to take him to do this. How would you like to walk in his shoes? You know, I think sometimes we have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves, and, and and we don't have any right to do that. I can scarcely comprehend that command that God gave to Abraham. I know it's true. It's the word of God. But I want you to know all human reasoning would argue against this being God's will. If God were to tell you and me this, we could stand and give human reasoning why this couldn't be God's will. Abraham could have. After all, in the first place, God had miraculously just given 25 years ago him to uh, his his wife Sarah and himself when they were beyond childbearing. Now all of a sudden he wants him. It also must be understood the covenant God made with Abraham being the seed, his seed as large as many as the stars of the heaven was contingent and hinged on Isaac. And now he wants to take him. Human sacrifice was condemned by God as heathen worship. I mean, if you wanted to make an argument with God and say, God, and I do this, 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 this. And by the way, as far as I'm concerned, it violated Every God given instinct of a parental love to do that. It was the supreme test of consecration and faith in God, and without understanding why God would ask, without understanding how it was all going to come out, he was willing to give the dearest thing of his life. You're talking about consecration, folks. Romans said, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Hebrews said, by faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. You see, there are those who would tell you the reason Isaac or Abraham could withstand this command was he believed if God could have given them that child, When it was long past childbirth, the same God could perform the miracle that if he ever had to take his life, he could raise him from the dead. And he could. But imagine the struggle. Have you ever walked up this hill with Abraham and Isaac? (laughs) By the way, for three days he walked, knowing what he was going to have to do. He never said anything to his wife. He carried it in his own heart, and all the time as he's walking with his son, 25-year-old lad, and he was looking at him knowing what the inevitable was going to be. And finally, when he begins to walk up the mountain, the servants were told to wait at the foot of the mountain, and he even said, we'll go up and worship and come back or return again. But as he was trudging up the mountain, Isaac looked at him. Said, "Dad, have you forgotten the lamb?" He said, "I got the wood and the fire. Did you forget the lamb?" And in my mind, I can see Abraham almost had to turn his head to hide the tear. Where's boy? He looked at him and said, God will provide himself a lamb for offering. He lays, finally, think about it. I wish I could get into this aspect, but just imagine, 25-year-old man. He could have overpowered that old man. 25 years old, and he takes him and lays him on that altar and ties him there. And reaches over and takes the flap of his tunic and lays it aside with the other hand. He begins to feel where is this heart? Where is it beating? And now he feels the beating of the heart, and he unsheaths the knife, probably without Isaac even seeing him doing it, because he knew if I'm going to thrust this thing into this sun, I don't want to have to do it twice. I want to know exactly where to put it. And he raises it up and it's glistening in the sun, and all of a sudden it said, the angel of the Lord said, Abraham, Abraham. Here am i lay not your hand on the lad. And the ram was over in the thicket. For he says these words, For I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me talking about consecration when we put the dearest thing of our hearts on the altar of consecration it's then that we can trust God to carry out the work of cleansing and purging the dross from our heart the reason God can't is because we won't And the reason we walk around and deny there is any such thing as a cleansing of the heart or entire sanctification is because we've not met the condition in order to appropriate the faith in order for the blood to go deeper than the state of sin is gone. I was studying in Romans 6 today. And you remember in Romans 5, it says, where sin abounds, his grace doth much more abound. And of course, the much more is there all through the Bible, much more is a graduate. It is actually a uh, paralleling or graduating, the greater from the lesser, the lesser from the greater. And I've often used the illustration that if uh, 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 he said, if we know being evil, know how to get good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him. Uh, if sin abounds, his grace does much more abound, much more, much more. How much more does the noonday sun exceed the light of a little candle? We just came through Easter. We just came through the resurrection. You'd hardly find any Christian that would question that God, through his spirit, raised Jesus from the dead. We just take that as a matter of fact. Can I tell you something? If he can do that, how much more can he deliver you and me from all sin? Paul also faced this, you remember? In his pre-Christian days, Paul was quite a, Quite a man that gloried in a lot of privileges. He was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrew. He was a Pharisee. as touching the law. He was concerning zeal. He persecuted the church, touching the righteousness of the law. He was blameless. I mean, he had credentials, 2,400 years of Jewish heritage. If anybody had credentials of which they could sort of boast, Saul did. But when he met Jesus, he said, I put all of those things on the debit side of the ledger. And he said, I counted it all loss for Christ. Did you get that word counted? Past tense. If you read it a little further in that same letter, he says, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and do count them, but refuse that I may win Christ. That's present tense. He not only counted, he counts and continues to count all things. In our consecration, it'll be tested. Make no mistake about it. There will be times when you'll have to face dark and difficult days. But if you will hold steady, stay true. Don't waver. Don't listen to the critics. Don't listen to the accusers of the brethren. Satan has a way of weaseling his his way around us and trying to get us to think things logically, can I tell you something? I must confirm everything by the book. Our God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always have all sufficiency of all things and may abound unto every good work for he is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Consecration, I give my all. And we do it to one another, don't we? We make vows to our mates and we're true to those vows for years, and I haven't never broken them. Soldiers, make the vow to their recruiting officers to defend the Constitution of the United States, even to the point of death, and thousands have died. If you can give that kind of loyalty to a country or to a mate, why can't we give that loyalty to the true and the living God? You can, and I'm sure most of you have. But I challenge you tonight, have you given him the dearest thing of all? If you withhold, I think it was... uh, I wish I could call his name now. One of the great uh, teachers of another era. But he said he'd given all the keys of his life to God but one. And he said God came to him one day and said I want all the keys. And he said I gave them all to you. And he said God turned and started to walk away, and he knew he had not given them all. And he knew if he walked away, he wasn't coming back. And he called him to come back. And he reached in his heart and gave the one key he tried to reserve to himself. And God honored that man for decades in spreading this gospel. Are you faithful? Are you true? We don't want to lie to the Holy Spirit. I know you don't. I was holding a meeting some time ago with Dr. John Oswald, great scholar of Asbury. And he was telling about a man that he knew who was a good man, church man, godly man as far as he knew. But he said... Uh, he came to him one day and he said, you know, I told my son that I was going to take him fishing Saturday, several weeks before. He said something came up and said, um, finally I had to go to my son, I said, son, we're not going to be able to go fishing Saturday, we'll do it next Saturday. He said next Saturday came and again, something came up and he said, son, we're not going to go fishing, I've got a problem, something's come up. And I can't do it today. We'll do it next Saturday. I think he said three or four times he put his son off like that. Finally, he said, Dad, why don't you quit lying to me? You're not going to take me fishing. He said the dad, like a heart, a dagger in the heart, he said, he just penetrated me. He said, I got on the phone, canceled whatever I was going to do, and I took my son fishing. He said, after it was over, he said, I asked him, I said, Did you, Old Waltz, did you catch any fish? He said, No. But he said, I saved a son. I wonder, are we true? Are we honest? And by the way, it doesn't have to be verbalized, it could be internalized. Are we honest? And true, God knows our hearts. Man looks on the outward appearance, but he goes deeper. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Does he have all of you? I'm not asking as though I have any questions. I'm just simply saying we have to ask ourselves, does he have all of me? Would you stand? I'm going to ask Tom if we could sing a hymn. And it may be that you're struggling and you don't need to.